Okay, we're good. Um, so I told Scott today, and maybe I've said this to you, I don't know, Scott and I feel like we've said this a few times, and, and you'll probably hear us a few more times, but basically we were talking and we just said, what in the world did we think that we were doing when we decided to do Genesis this year? Um, I remember when we first started talking about it thinking, I don't know if there's enough there for us to talk about. I don't know if we're going to have enough stuff to teach on. I mean, Thursday nights are going to be super quick, you know. Um, And now I'm going, we, there's no way in a year we can get through all of this stuff. There's too much there. There's too much um, to dig into. The, The gap is so big between us and that ancient audience that there's just a lot Um, that we have to work through to try and understand it well, and tonight is definitely one of those nights. Um, We're in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 uh, tonight. And and as we got closer to it, uh, first of all, I came across some stuff in my studies that kind of rocked my world a little bit, and, and spent some time with me, stuff that I'm so, like, I, we can't actually even, we don't even have time to talk about tonight. Scott and I have talked about we may try and put together a special kind of podcast episode where we just walk through some of the stuff out of Genesis 6 through 9 that is a little bit surprising and, and stuff. There just wasn't time for it tonight. There's so much. And, and there's not time for us to walk, you know, verse by verse through this text. Just reading, Scott was saying he just played it on the, e, on the version app. If we just read the text, it would be 15 minutes. Um, and I've got like 20, 25. So, uh, you know, so we, we don't even have time to go all the way through that. Here's, here's what we're going to do. Um, if you've spent any time in Sunday school or VBS, whatever, you, you basically know the story. Uh, that God um, looks upon His creation, looks upon mankind, sees the evil and the wickedness that has consumed His creation, and decides that He is going to start over and destroy it by sending a great flood. But He chooses to save one man and his family, Noah, along with the uh, along with the number of animals, and has him build an ark. And He sends this massive flood, but they stay safe in the ark, and then they come out and kind of start over from there as God makes a covenant with them. That's the, that's the big gist, and, and you probably know the story. We're not going to walk all the way through it. What I want to do tonight is just point out five things from the text um, that I think are worth noti- uh, noting or noticing to give us kind of a better grasp of this story and to give a better grasp of the God behind that story. So five things, and I'm sorry, not one of them is going to have to do with the Nephilim. I know that you are probably going, I got to know what in the world is going on with the Nephilim in Genesis 1-5. through I'm sorry. Um, actually, I can give you the short version. Okay, here's the short version of that. I don't know. All right? Um, <laughs> We, we know basically it says that the sons of God come, come down and they sleep with women and then are born to them, the Nephilim and those things. There are probably three options. Um, sons of God meaning angels. Sons of God meaning kings. Son of God, sons of God meaning giants. Um, and, and my uneducated, unexpert guess is kings, perhaps, just because they were often referred to as that back then, but I'm like, scale of 1 to 10 on certainty, I'm a 1.5 on that, all right? So um, that's as much as we're getting into the Nephilim tonight. We're going to be talking about the Noah story. So you can open up, even if we're not walking verse by verse, we are going to read a few specific verses out of it, and the first one comes in Genesis 6, verse 5. Let me get there. All right. Genesis 6, verse 5, and then we're going to read verses 11 and 12 too. Um, says, verse 5 says this, that Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Um, that is a pretty depressing statement right there that's made. And then there's one similar down in verse 11 and then in verse 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, um, all those, those verses, those three verses have something in common and that is God seeing. Verse 5, um, Yahweh saw, and then verse 11 is corrupt in God's sight, and verse 12, and God saw. Um, that phrase sound familiar to you? And God saw. When was the last time we heard that? 
Genesis 1. Genesis 1.31 is the last time we saw that, the last verse of Genesis 1, I believe. And God saw that everything He created was good. And that was, that's, that's that phrase that went over, and God saw that it was good, saw that it was good, saw that it was good, and it ends in 31, and God saw that everything He created was good, and now we see, and God saw, verse 12, the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh, all people it is, had corrupted their way on the earth. And so it, we, last time we saw it, it was God seeing this good world that he had made. And now we see it again, and this phrase is God seeing how man has undone the good that God has created. How, how through their violence and their wickedness, human beings have undone that. Genesis 1 starts with the chaos and the, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and, and the sea kind of represented chaos to the people back then. And God brings order out of the chaos and makes everything right and good. And Genesis 6 here kind of starts um, by showing, it actually doesn't start, we've seen it happen ever since the fall in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, and then Cain, and then Lamech, and now here we are and we see that man has made chaos out of the order. That we've come back to this chaotic, violent, corrupt scene, and, and this is the state um, that we're in in Genesis 6. Now, I want you to look at verses 6 and 7. These are interesting verses for, for our theology a little bit. Um, and it says, and, uh, and Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Uh, this is an interesting concept. God regretted that He created all these things. Is that possible? Can God regret? That is, God looks down and goes, shoot, probably shouldn't have done that. Can He do that? Can He look and go, man, that, that was a bad decision that I made. Um, how do we make sense of a phrase like that, or at the end of it where it says He was sorry? that he made that. Ah, man, really bummed I did that. Sorry I did that. Can't believe I did that. Um, there are some who read this and some other passages like this, and they go, that's what it says. That's what it looks like. And they've begun to come to a conclusion that, yes, God really does regret sometimes. God really is sorry about a decision he made. God really does wish he would have done it differently. Um, it's a, it's a, a doctrine, I don't know if doctrine makes it sound like it's true, but it's a belief called the openness of God. Or it's also called the kind of more technical open theism. That is that God doesn't know the future. God doesn't know what things are going to be like. He's incredibly smart. He's incredibly wise. So he makes the wisest decisions with what he sees. And he often knows how we're going to interact. So he's kind of like this divine chess player who kind of knows how you're going to move. And he can make just the right move in response to it and those kinds of things. Uh, but, but he doesn't really know the future. And so sometimes things don't always work out. Uh, that's a belief that many people have. The problem is that that doesn't seem to line up with the rest of Scripture. Uh, it doesn't seem to line up with places like Isaiah 46.10. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God says in Isaiah 46, I see the end from the beginning. I have a purpose I will set out and I can accomplish it. I know the direction things are going to go. Or even on a more personal note, Psalm 139.16 says about God, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The picture that the Bible paints of God is of a God who knows before it even happens, who sees before it happens. And so he does not make mistakes. He does not sit in heaven and go, dang it, wish I would have played that differently. Does not, um, does not uh, feel bad, doesn't regret. But, but it, says it says, Drew, that he regrets. Um, yeah, that gets tricky. That gets complicated. Some people think, actually, that 
Yes, it says that, but what's trying to happen here, and this is what I believe for a long time, actually, is God is trying to, that the Bible is trying to put in words something that is similar to what we can understand. He's kind of putting anthropological language on God. So God goes, I don't really regret, but that's the closest thing you as a human being can understand to what that feeling is. That's, that's kind of what I thought was going on here. And I think that that does take place some places in the Old Testament. But there's some reading I've done this week that's kind of changed my mind a little bit. The word here, when it says that God regrets, it's naham in the Hebrew. you got to get that ha in there like you're about to spit, okay? Um, naham. And, uh, and it is, it's actually the same word that says he regrets is actually the same word in verse 7 that says he was sorry. Exact same word. So God regretted, God was sorry. Same word. Um, and it's a tricky one. There actually is no English equivalent for it. So I can't tell you it means this. We don't, we don't have an English word for it. In fact, the NIV, when it tries to translate this, um, translates it 10 different ways in different places in the Old Testament. Like it, it keeps trying different, like here we think it kind of means this, it kind of means this. It's just a word that is bigger than we have. Actually, the Greek does it too. Um, when they translated the, the Old Testament into Greek, we call it the Septuagint, they had 10 different Greek words trying to describe this because there was no word that could get itself around it very well. Um, John Walton, who we reference a lot and use a lot, he says that this is actually kind of best understood, this word is best understood in terms of like accounting. Um, it's, it's a word we talk about in, in bookkeeping. It's always important that you keep the ledgers balanced, that for every debit there needs to be a credit, or that at the end at least all the total debits and all the credits need to add up. You have to keep the books balanced at all times. This is a word that has to do with taking account and then balancing it out, making things right again. And so it is taking a personal account of somebody's life or one's life, taking a national account of the state of Israel or of a people group, or even a cosmic account of the the way things are. And so this is what seems to be described here, and Walton gives a number of examples in the Old Testament where this seems to play out, that this is more than just a grieving word or a regretting word or a sorry word. This is a examine and go, something is not right here, and now I'm going to make it right. And that's the kind of word that is getting used in this text. Um, It is saying Yahweh audited the accounts and he is determined to set it right. There is a great amount of wickedness. All the world is is wickedness. I'm going to make that right. It's not a word that has to do um, with God getting overly emotional and then flying off the handle. It's not a word describing God going, man, I blew it, but now I'm going to make it right. Or that he gets really angry or that he loses his temper. It is a settled, this is the situation, I will fix it. I will make things right. Um, go ahead and read, look at Genesis 6 verses 11 through 13. We already read 11 and 12, but I want you to see them in connection with 13. Um, here's the third, third little section I want to point out. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth." Um, here is another word, and you saw it come up three times, the word corrupt. Corrupt. He saw that it was corrupt, and he saw that it was corrupt, and man had corrupted itself. Humanity had corrupted itself, and that word is shachath in Hebrew. Again, and I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering it, but hopefully there's no Hebrew scholars in here. Um, and, and that word is uh, in there. You see it three times as the word corrupt. It's actually in the verses we just read four times. And the fourth time that it's in there, the ESV translate it, translates it destroy in verse 13, where he says, I will destroy them with the earth. So it's the exact same word as when God says that the earth is corrupt and that man and woman have corrupted themselves, that they have corrupted the earth. In other words, what he's saying here is that God is going to do to them what they've already actually done to themselves. So God says they have corrupt, they've already destroyed themselves. I'm just going to take things to the logical conclusion of what they've done. They've already corrupted themselves, so I'm going to corrupt it all the way. They've already brought chaos, so I'm about to unleash chaos on chaos. 
so that they will experience the logical end, the full end of what they have done. He's taking it to its logical conclusion. By the way, this isn't just done in the Bible through catastrophe. Do you know one of the most dangerous, scary forms of God's wrath described, not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament? Actually, it's described this way in the Old Testament as well, I think. But in the New Testament, one of the most dangerous forms of God's wrath that you could ever experience is Him letting you have your way. Genesis, or Romans 1, Paul says this, that the wrath of God is being poured out against mankind um, for ignoring Him, for ignoring His glory. And he'll go on and say, and because they did this, because they did not see fit to worship God as Creator, He gave them over to their sins. Gave them over to a depraved mind. Um, we think sometimes it's mean for God to step in and punish when someone does something wrong. The Bible says, actually, that's one of the nicest things he could probably do because the worst thing is for him to let you continue in your sin and to let you move to the logical conclusion of the kind of life that you're living. Um, look at... Uh, actually, well, I'm, we're not going to read it all. Genesis 6, 11 through 9, 17 is this next section that I want to show you. And that's basically the whole story. All right, that's, that's the whole story. Um, but, but what's interesting about Genesis or, or this flood story, actually, is there are some scholars who've noticed that this appears to be written in a chiastic structure. All right, you may have heard us use the word chiasm here before. Chiasm is a literary technique that ancient writers used to use um, quite a bit, primarily in poetry and in wisdom literature. You'll see this a lot in the Psalms, um, and you'll see it some in like Proverbs, but it also takes place in narrative. Even in the Gospels, sometimes it appears at least. Uh, I think sometimes people see chiasm too much in the Scriptures. They think it's everywhere. Um, but, but it does appear in, in narrative too. And what chiasm is, is um, this technique where you mirror different parts of the story or different parts of the text as they go along. So that the very first part of the story mirrors the very last part of the story. And the second part of the story mirrors the next to last part of the story. And that's what actually is taking place here. You, got, you have to excuse my diagonal writing. I noticed as I went, I just started kind of trailing up a little bit. So um, excuse that as you look. But, but if you read this story, it seems like there is some bit of a mirroring function, a chiastic structure that's taking place in this passage, which starts with the violence in the creation that God had made, and then a covenant in which God is starting kind of the creation process over. He's restarting what took place in the Garden of Eden. What got undone up here is kind of restarted here at the end. Um, the second part of this section takes place in uh, chapter 6, verses 13 through 22, which is God, oh, that's not supposed to say resolve. That's supposed to say resolve. Sorry about that. Resolve. God resolves to destroy um, the earth, which we just read that section. Um, but if you read the next to last section, it actually parallels that. God gives a resolve to preserve order. I will never again destroy the earth as I did before. I will make things right. I will bring it as it is. And so as you look at this, what you'll notice is that each of these is mirrored by one on the other side. But here's what often is taking place in a chiasm, especially, um, it doesn't always work this way in the Psalms, because sometimes the Psalms are real simple, just like A, B, B, A, just kind of a really simple poetic thing. But a lot of times in the narrative, the writers will use a chiasm as a structure to draw your attention to the middle point to the hinge point, because there is one part right in the middle of this that we haven't felt, um, that we haven't filled in yet, and that part is Genesis 8, the very first part of 1, it says this, but God remembered Noah. This appears to be the very center of the story. This appears, at least to some scholars, this guy named uh, Winham, this British scholar, Gordon Winham, who spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, looks at this and he goes, this appears to be what the writer is driving us towards. Don't get so caught up 
in the water. Don't get so caught up in the destruction. Don't get, yes, you got to see that. You got to know that that took place. You got to see the wickedness. You got to see God. But note uh, the turning point. Note the central point of this story. In the middle of the judgment, in the middle of the destruction, in the middle of the chaos, God remembered Noah. God took care of Noah. And this is not just a story about God saving one man and his family. This is a story about God salvaging all of mankind, all of his creation. This is a story about God reaching in to the chaos that has taken place in his good world and saying, I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to make it all right. I'm going to make it what it ought to be again. And so he doesn't just wipe it all clean. No, no, no. He remembers Noah. He remembers his family. And from this family and and from the animals that he puts on this ark, God says, I'm going to start again. I'm going to do this right. And so it, and and again, I I can't even say for sure this is exactly what the the, uh, writer Moses putting this together is trying to do, but it sure looks like it when you read this literary structure torn out, that the the point of this is what God is doing to salvage His creation. One last thing I want you to notice about this text, and I never noticed this in my 35 years and in all the time that I spent in Sunday school. Um, Noah never speaks in this story. Never opens his mouth. Never says a thing. There's not a quote from Noah in this entire story. He is a flat character. Um, We never see him give instruction to his family about building the boat. We never see him praying. We never see him pleading to God for anyone else. We don't hear bursts of gratitude or praise. We don't see him um, responding to God's commands with anything. We don't see him asking any questions. He's completely silent throughout this whole story. Now, is that because Noah really never said anything in this? No. It's because the writer, I think, is kind of making a point here. Um, That uh, he's actually making this reminder of what we've said to you over and over again and what we're going to keep saying to you over and over again. Noah's not the point. Noah has a, like, bit role. He's a bit character in this story. Um, The story about Noah and the ark You know, it sounds obviously like he's the star. No, 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 no. He's just like a a side character, if that. Um, That's not what this story about. This story um, is designed, just like everything else we're going to see in Genesis, just like anything else you'll see in the Old Testament, to teach us about God, to reveal to us who God is and his nature. Now, this story, I think, highlights it more than a lot of others because you get so little out of Noah in it. Um, Because you get to, what, what you think is such a big deal. This guy in this story really doesn't, uh, doesn't say much. All we even know about him is what God declares about him, what God says about him. God is the star and the hero here. And so the question about this story, where this guy loads up a bunch of animals on an ark, and the door gets shut, and rain comes down in torrents and destroys everything around him, is what does that teach us? about a God like that, a God who would send a flood like that, a God who would destroy humanity like that. What what does a story like this, what does the writer of Genesis want us to know about a God like that when he tells us this story? That's what Scott's going to talk with you about in just a couple minutes. Uh, First, we'll take a two-minute break, and then we'll jump back in. All right, so I have three kids. My oldest is 16. When she was a baby, this is our first child, um, she came three and a half weeks early, so she was tiny, five pounds, 12 ounces. We literally went for just a last checkup, and about three hours later, we had a a baby. It was like, (laughs) sweet. Um, So we go into the doctor. um, I don't even know why I'm telling the story. But the, we, we go in, and the doctor's like, um, yeah, I, we had a little ultrasound. And she was like, um, I just called the doctor upstairs, and she'd like to meet with you. We're like, oh, okay. She didn't tell us really anything. So we go upstairs. The doctor's like, yeah, so your fluid's really low. The, the amniotic fluid's really low. 
So I think we think you should just go over to the hospital just to just for just to get checked out, just to make sure everything's okay. And the hospital was in the parking lot of our doctor's office, so we walked across and went to the hospital. We we hadn't done our done our tour. We didn't know anywhere. We didn't know where to go. We're like, hi, we're here. The doctor told us to come because we're having a baby. Sometime I don't know. They just want us to get checked up. They're like, okay, yeah, we got you. Come up here, get us set up, get us in the room. The nurse comes in, and says the doctor will be here in 30 minutes to deliver your baby. And that was the first time we're like, what? What's happening? So, um, so yeah, that was fun. I didn't have a camera, didn't have anything. Went down to the gift shop, bought a disposable camera. So my the the pictures of my first kid with a disposable camera. <laughs> So that's me um, in the delivery room taking pictures of this little baby with a disposable. I don't even know where those pictures are. Um, so sad, sad story. But so we take her home. We eventually get her, her room set up. And guess what, guess what the theme of her bedroom is? Anybody want to take a guess? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Um, so we had a little crib with bedding, uh, you know, a bumper. Thing. I don't know what they're called anymore. I used to know. Um, we had stuff on the wall. We had little, we had little things on her dresser that were all Noah's Ark. You know, my wife had been collecting for years before we even had kids or were pregnant. Um, it was Noah's Ark thing. So why do you think that is? Why were we trying to communicate to this little child the judgment and the wrath of God? No. God loves baby cute animals. He's cute. You know, God's, God loves cute baby animals, and he likes boats. So that's what we're communicating to our kids. Um, it's crazy that that story, of all stories, that's the story probably that most, like, nurseries and most little kids know. Like, in every baby book, we, every baby Bible book we ever had, had Noah's Ark story. And only one that I know of did a pretty good job describing it. Um, the others... Terrible job describing it. It's like cute little animals getting onto a fun boat. This look, this is cute and awesome. Um, not really the point of the story. But then the other side of the, of the spectrum is like in 1999, there's a mini series about Noah's Ark, and John Voight was was Noah, and um, the the God that's portrayed in that is basically a God who is moody and kind of needy. Because he, he just flies off the handle a little bit on a whim, and then also he needs Noah, so that's why he keeps him alive kind of a thing. Not really the point of the story. And then in 2014, how many of you saw the movie Noah with Russell Crowe? Okay. So I, I remember seeing it. I remember seeing it. It was entertaining. Um, but I think the point of the movie is they actually were trying, this is a little different. They were trying to give God a pass, you know, the reason why God destroyed people is because they were destroying the planet. I think it was kind of maybe the message that was being dis- described there. It seemed like like the, the whole point was, it, it was almost like, yeah, yeah, there's bad people who are destroying the planet, so no wonder why God wiped them out. That's not really the point of the story either. And so we get confused because from, from the time we're little to these TV shows, what's the point of the story? And more importantly, like what Drew asked, like who is... God in this story? How is God being portrayed in this story? And so I want to I go back to something I mentioned last week or two weeks ago, I guess, about thinking rightly about God. Like, we need to think rightly about God. And, and I want to talk about a couple things that I think help kind of set us up to where we're going. And, and a lot of it comes from a book that we read last year with a group of leaders here called The Knowledge of the Holy. I meant to actually bring it up here, and it's in my bag back there. I have a copy of it if you want to see it. It's quickly moving up to probably like top five books I've ever read in terms of most helpful, most, um, yeah, helpful, I guess is the best word, to understanding who God is. And in this book, actually, I need the book. So, Drew, can you get it? My bag's right there to your right. Yep. In the book, he has like 20 different attributes of God. And I was going to go off the list of the table of contents. There it is. Okay, here's the book, Knowledge of the Holy. Great book. Here's, here's the different attributes and mentions. He says, 
he talks about God being self-existent. Okay? That God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anyone. He sustains. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is immutable, meaning He doesn't change. The, that's, the Bible describes Him as unchanging. Um, he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is he's all-wise. He is um, om, omnipotent, which is He's all-powerful. He is tr- transcendent. So he kind of speaks against that, like the Bible describes God as being transcendent. He rises above um, space and time. And he, he isn't sitting there on the edge of time wondering what's going to happen next, like, like what Drew described. He is, um, he is faithful. He is good. He is just. It talks about the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, the, the sovereignty of God. And so all of these attributes are things that... Um, are, are, are ways that God exists and, and they fit together perfectly. And so we need to think rightly about Him. And so I want to just mention a couple things. Both are sent lines that, that Tozer uses in this book. And the first one is the very first line of the first chapter. And it's this. It should be on the screen. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So it determines what we think of God. Here's this point is what we think of God affects how we think about the past. It affects how you live in the present. And it affects like where you go in the future. So what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because it affects every everything else. So thinking wrongly about God is not only harmful, but actually Uh, he argues, is idolatrous. So listen to what he says. He says, Wrong ideas about God are not only the the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. He says, The idolater simply imagines things about God and then acts as if they were true. Now that's interesting. He imagines that the idolater... He or she imagines things about God and then just acts as if they're true. So Jim Johnson was telling me just a couple days ago, he met with this girl about a week ago, and she's not from here. She's from Australia and I think the Netherlands or somewhere overseas, and she's here for a year or so. But she came to a Bible study, and she was like, you guys are talking about Jesus in a, in a way that I've never heard before. And so he's, he wanted to meet with her and find out what she meant by that. And so they sat down and they started talking. And so she's describing that her understanding of Jesus is whatever, whatever is helpful to her. That's whatever, whoever Jesus is, he must be helpful to her. So anything of Jesus that doesn't make her feel good or isn't helpful to her, she dismisses. No, that's not Jesus because that doesn't help me. That doesn't inspire me. And so... This is what I think Jesus means. This is what, who I think Jesus is. This is who I think God is. Isn't that fascinating? Um, and I, I, I believe that that's actually more true of most of us and a lot of us than we probably care to realize. Like that, that, we, that we have ideas about God that don't come from anywhere other than maybe our own ideas or the ideas around us. And so I think there's probably three options of like, who has influenced your understanding of God? Like, where do you get your understanding of God? I think there's probably at best three options. One is others, like, like maybe churches that you grew up in or parents that you have, have have modeled to you or taught you or exemplified maybe what you think God might be like. Um, the culture around us certainly portrays a view of, of God um, that isn't accurate. And so, for instance, um, in, in, a, in a certain culture in the Middle East, they're totally okay with a God who is judge, the God of judgment and wrath. Like, they're totally okay with that. But what they don't understand and what they have a hard time accepting is a God of grace and mercy. Like, that's a little, that's a stretch. But this God of wrath? Sure. Yeah, totally. Isn't that interesting? Like, so... Uh, a culture that exists, exists right now thinks that way. And so the point is, every culture from the beginning of time has, 
has at some point gotten it wrong, like has a certain view of God that isn't true. The other option would be you, just like this girl or me, when we kind of just decide we want to, to believe God is a certain way. And then the third option, obviously, is God. Now, that one comes, this last one comes with a set of challenges. So, so how does God determine your view of God? Well, we believe from His Word. And so, but that, again, comes with a set of challenges because you have to do what Drew and I are trying to do, which is try to understand what someone wrote 3,500 years ago in order to, to understand how God inspired them to write about Him so that we can understand Him. So it comes with challenges, but it's by far the best option. So the, the other thing I want to talk about is, is this, this idea of the attributes of God. That they're not just qualities He possesses, they are how God is as He reveals Himself to us. So you think about an attribute um, like, like love or, or mercy or justice um, those are things that we aspire to do. And what the Bible seems to describe, those are just who God is. So none of the attributes compete against each other or oppose each other or contradict each other. Um, they're all in perfect unity. And, and, and they are defined by His actions. So in the same way that like gold doesn't try to be gold... Think about that. So gold, um, as an element, doesn't have to try to be gold or to display the color of gold. It just is gold. It is what it is. It doesn't try to be. It simply is. And so the Bible portrays God this way. It portrays God as um, having these attributes, and they all, they all fit perfectly together. And, and, and so God is love and just and holy and mercy, and faithful. And so he doesn't, he doesn't choose to do loving things or one day and then choose to do just things the next day. He just is. And then we go, oh, that's what love is. That's what just is. That's what faithfulness is. It's by his eyes. So those, these are, the attributes are just words that we, we are, they actually have, are used in Scripture, but are using Scripture to describe God, but really it's just God being consistent with who He is. Um, this means that, this is a crucial thing, this means that God is not one way in the Old Testament and then something different in the New Testament. That's not, that's not the way God is portrayed. He is consistent. All of the love of God that we see in Jesus on, in Matthew 27 with Him dying on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All, all of that is the same God we see in Genesis 6, in, 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 this, in this judgment that comes, in the wrath that comes. Um, it's the same God. It's cons- he's consistent with His name. He's unchanging. The Bible says He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, that is huge. And, and I think that trips people up when they read stories like this to go, Okay, yeah, I kind of prefer the Jesus in the in the old in the New Testament, who's like. I always get this wrong, holding children and petting lambs. That's I always say at the opposite. Anyway, holding children, come to me, children, and then petting lambs. You know, that's the Jesus I want, right? It's kind of, it kind of reminds me, reminds me of um, the movie, um, Talladega Nights. Have you seen this movie? Um, they're sitting at the dinner table and they're praying to Jesus and he, he wants to pray to baby Jesus because that's the, that's the Jesus he prefers, the eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus. Um, like, we, we don't get to just do that. That's not how this works. And so, uh, I think that's important to understand. So, now, how do we get to understanding the judgment and this, the wrath of God? So, I, I want to just, I get this question a lot. So, been been in ministry 20 years and, and I get a question like this, maybe not specifically about Genesis 6 through 9, but maybe something else. How do, you, like, how do you explain this? How do you understand this? This is a very popular question. And, and I'll tell you, when someone comes to me and ha- asks this question, and they have a sense of like panic, because they're like, I don't know if I can believe in this God. So how do you understand this? I feel the weight of that. 
probably like you would. If you had a friend come to you and like, okay, I, you, you better give me an explanation of this or I'm out. That's, that's a lot of pressure. And I feel that pressure because the, the, the Western um, American modern sensibilities in me could easily be offended by a God that if it's portrayed as just wiping out people for no reason, or even if he has a good reason, I don't know what it is, and I don't know if I trust it. it, it that, that rubs against me. So I have to kind of work through it. I, 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 I have a moment of like, oh, gosh, yeah. What do I believe about that? That is hard. But I want to explain to you kind of how I work through it. Okay, this is just how I work through it, how I think through it, and maybe it's helpful for you. This is where I go. Once, once I get over the initial like, okay, that's a big question. That's a hard one. Um, for me, everything starts with Jesus. Actually, in, in all reality, it, it starts and ends with Him. But it starts with Jesus. And, and what I mean by that is, if you want to recreate this, you can. Um, but it starts with Jesus, specifically the resurrection. The resurrection is a pretty big deal. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, like if, that, if that didn't happen, then of all people we need to be pitied. So it's, it's a pretty big deal. Now, I wish I could tell you that I wasn't, I wasn't a Christian and then um, I wrestled with the resurrection, read everything, studied everything, and then came to the conclusion that it's real. And so now I believe, I wish, I wish that would be a way cooler story. It's actually not how it worked for me. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. I was taught about Jesus from an early age, just like I'm doing with my kids. But there is a point in which I realized, if this thing didn't really happen, then I'm wasting my time here. And so I believe it happened. And, and there's a plethora of reasons why we won't get into that. So the resurrection is a big deal. That's where I, that's where I go. Okay, the resurrection happened. Now, the resurrection happened, um, okay, then, then we need to know something about this guy, Jesus. What else hap- did he do and what else did he say? Well, a couple things he said, three things specifically. He predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection three different times. In the Gospel of Mark, he pr- predicts it three times, and then he does it. So, okay, now we're not just talking about some fluke thing, some guy raised from the dead. No, this guy has a plan. This guy talked about it and did it. Okay, what else did he say? Well, he said he was God. Okay, that's a pretty big deal. He says he's God. Okay, what else did he say? Well, he quotes from the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament. In fact, from Genesis through the end, which actually the the, the last story wouldn't necessarily be Malachi, that's the last book of the Bible, and probably the last prophet, but in, in narrative form, Chronicles would be, the end of Chronicles would kind of be the end of the story. And, and Jesus at one time quotes the, the first to the, to the last. He quotes the, the whole thing. He actually quotes the narrative of, of the flood. He quotes the flood story, talks about the flood story as fact, as a story that he believes in, in exists. So, okay, he rose from the dead. He predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. He claimed to be God, and he believes the Bible. He believes the Old Testament to be true, because he quotes it. So, then I believe what this thing says. That's where I go. Because it's, the Bible says that God is holy and just. And so, these... Okay, I forgot to put a couple things. Um, he's God. That's big. And then he believes the Bible. So therefore, I believe the Bible. And what does the Bible say about God? Well, He says He's holy. He says He's just. He says He's love. He talks about the mercy of God. So these are all the things that, I mean, and, and more. These are the attributes of God. And so when I come to the flood story, which kind of really points to somewhere in this category of like just and holy, then I go, okay, then I need to try to understand what's happening here. And Drew already talked about, like, we, we need to trust and understand the Bible on its terms. And so, so then, the, then, the, then the goal is, okay, so what's going on in this story? And, and so how do we understand 
the, 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 how we understand the, the wrath and the judgment of God is, is tied directly to how we understand um, the holiness and the justice of God. So, the, the second thing I want to talk about under this is that the judgment of God, as seen here in Genesis 6-9, the judgment of God is, is God's justice confronting moral inequity. It's God's justice confronting moral, moral inequity. We've already, we've already seen a picture of God. So you go back to the beginning, we see a God who creates order and brings purpose to everything. Um, a God who gives and blesses. A God who uh, sits in, in, uh, enthroned and reigning and sustaining everything that exists, and a God who's in total control, okay? And everything is good when he's, when he's at the helm. And then you see these little image bearers that he makes, and he tells them how to stay in right relationship with him, and they can't keep the one rule. You got one rule, and they couldn't keep it. And so you see the introduction of sin, but in that you see God's warning them, um, pursuing them, um, providing a cover for them to cover their nakedness. Uh, you see them um, kind of directing them out. And actually it says, originally it says, you eat it and you'll die. And he lets them live another however many hundreds of years. Okay? We don't, Drew talked about all things we don't have time to talk about. We don't have time to talk about chapter 5, which all, how certain people lived hundreds and hundreds of years. I know some of you had that question. And I said, I told somebody, that I was going to answer it, and we don't have time to answer it. So, um, but we'll, maybe we'll get into it on the podcast. So, like, you, you, see, you see God with, with how he is with Adam and Eve, with sin being introduced. It was you, wasn't it? Yeah. Sin being introduced. And then in, in Genesis 4, you see sin progressing very quickly from, okay, it, it separated them from God, to now it's destroying families. Murder is, it goes quickly, and you see God pursuing and being gracious, and and giving him a mark to protect him as he goes out, right with Cain. And then and then the sin progresses all the way to Genesis, right six verse five, which which he read. You know the, the progression of human inequity had gotten so far. And so God, like like Drew pointed out, God sees this thing out of balance and decides this has to be checked. And so what's interesting about judgment is we like judgment when we're, on, when we're on the right side of it. Right? So like if you if you get, I don't know, falsely accused of something and it's taken before a judge and all the evidence is presented and the, and the, and the judge and the jury make a judgment that you're innocent, you go yes, right. But if the judgment is you're guilty, you go, uh-uh, no. It's interesting. We like judgment when we're on the right side of it. And, and so, when, 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 when God is weighing whatever these things, however He does it, um, it, is, it is met with, the sin of the people is met, meets God's judgment. And so, you, you probably heard the phrase, um, God can't be in the presence of sin. It's actually, when we say it that way, it almost sounds like when there's sin, God has to get away. Like, oh, God's scared of sin. But it's really more like, it'd be, it's more like a candle can't be in the presence of a tornado. That's really more, it's more what it's like. It's, it's, it's that, the, that God, like when sin bumps up against God, there is, it's like being bumped up against a tornado. You, you can't stand. So, so the, the inequity of the people, the sin of the people, crashes up against God's judge, justice. And so God makes a judgment of what He needs to do. And by the way, um, mercy, the mercy of God, is God's goodness confronting human suffering and guilt. So it works both ways. So we, if someone's suffering, we would want God to repay um, and to give mercy. Um, so l- let me read to you Psalm 94 really quickly. Psalm 94 that 
says, Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine. Rise up, judge the earth. Repay the proud what they deserve. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? They pour out arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. Lord, they crush your people, they oppress your heritage. They, they kill the widow and, and the resident alien and murder the fatherless. They say the Lord doesn't see it. The God of Jacob doesn't pay attention. And so this psalmist, David most likely, is crying out for God to bring justice and judgment on these evildoers. And when we're on the right side of that, we go yes and amen. The third thing I want to point out is that the wrath of God is God's holiness confronting anything that degrades or destroys. And so, God is holy. And He actually, the way He set this up, the way He wants His people to be in relationship with Him is for them to be holy too. And so, we fast forward this story quite a bit and when, when God is before His people at Mount Sinai, He gives them the law and He helps them set up a, a, a system in which to stay in right relationship, it's for them to stay holy, to, to be set apart. That's what the word holy means, to be set apart. So God is set apart and He calls us to be set apart to Him and for Him. And so when, when, when holiness confronts um, anything that degrades or destroys that relationship or, or people, then the wrath of God comes. So in the same way, like a mom wants to kill bacteria or disease that would, have, that would attack her child, right? A mom will, whatever it is, antibacterial, just spray it all over or get, get medicine or do whatever is needed, right? Whatever is needed to kill this thing that is degrading or destroying my child, that's what I will do. Um, and that's the God that's described here in Genesis um, 6 through 9. So now turn to Romans. I want to end with just a couple things. And I want to actually point out the verses that Drew was talking about in Romans 1. Because I want you to know where those are. Because they're really helpful verses to understand the wrath of God. Romans 1, starting at verse 18, you see it says, like he, to- like he talked about it. Somebody read... Um, Romans 1.18. Okay? Of course. <laughs> read us, O oh reader of the word. Read us? No, read it. That's what I meant. Just 1.18? Yep. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, then he goes on to describe like different ways in which we suppress the truth, different ways in which um, we sin, which it, things like we, um, we worship the created things over the Creator, or things like we don't give God the credit that, that He deserves, we want to take it for ourselves. And so these are big, big, broad things that all of us have done there, at least in, in, in Genesis 1. And then read Genesis 1.24, sorry, Romans 1.24. Okay, so it says, like, like Drew said, God delivered them over to their desires. It says it again in verse 26. Okay, so the wrath of God is being poured out in that way by letting them do the things that they wanted to do. C.S. Lewis says in uh, The Great Divorce, he says, um, that there are two types of people. There are one person that, that will say to God, Thy will be done. And then the other person, God will say to them, Thy will be done. And you don't want to be that second person, is, is kind of the point. Now turn to Gen- uh, sorry, Romans. We're in Romans, everybody. Turn to Romans 3. I want you to see, I want to point out just some, some things. So read, Jared, read 3.21 through 26. Justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Big section. I think, my opinion, biggest paragraph in the Bible right there. I think it's huge. A um, couple things. One, he talked. He mentioned this word propitiation in verse 25. That literally means bearing the punishment of God. Jesus bore our punishment. Okay, The wrath was, wrath was poured out on him on our behalf. The other thing he mentioned in 26, it says God was both just and the justifier. So God is just in that he must punish sin. We, we want justice. Okay, Again, if you're on the right side of that, you want justice. So because God is a just God, He must punish sin. But He also is the one that took the punishment. He is both just and the justifier. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, last verse, Romans 8.1. Okay, so to be in Christ, to be in Christ is to claim His holiness. So, like what what's happening here is as as we progress through the story of God, right? God created the fall, redemption, restoration. As God is bringing redemption and restoration to His people to this world um, through Jesus, and so God must. God is a holy God, and He is a just God, and so that's why He punishes things that deserve His punishment. Um, but because of Jesus, we get to claim His righteousness. We get to claim His, we get to be justified under Him. We get to be um, seen as holy and set apart to God. It's a, when it talks about the church, the saints, those are um, people who are set apart for Him, and that's us, and that's who those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus get to claim His holiness. It's a big deal. So let me pray. God, thank You for um, Your Word. I'm thankful for the, the, the truth that we get to claim Your holiness, that we get to trust in You and be made right in you, and be in this process of being set apart to you and for you. And so, God, I pray that um, we would continue to. And I pray, God, if there's anyone in this in this room that that hasn't done that, that hasn't can't remember a time when they've um, placed their faith and their trust and their life in you and in, in what Jesus has done, God, I pray that they would talk to someone about that. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, real quick announcement, and then we will be done. Um, next week is kind of a different night. We, once a semester, we do a Q&A night. And so next week, it'll be a Q&A night, okay? And so we have some special guests come. We'll have a panel of four people. One is a, a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, her name is Melissa Oliver, and she's going to come and talk to us. And so you guys can be thinking of questions, maybe, maybe dealing with relationships or maybe dealing with whatever, anything you're wrestling with or struggling with. And so she'll be there. Um, uh, also, a guy named, his name is Brian Elbing. Brian Elbing. Uh, he is a Ph.D. in mechanical engineering and aerospace, right? And he also teaches, I think, currently teaches fluid, fluid mechanics. He's a brilliant guy. Jim claims, to be, claims him to be the smartest person Jim's ever known. Anyway, he's going to be here. Um, and so he's going to share a little bit of his story and talk, but he, but he bring the science questions. Like, so bring bring it, because he can deal with it and answer it, because he's worked through it quite a bit himself. And then Drew will be up here. Um, so, you know, any questions you have about, like, grooming a beard or having cool hair, he'll be able to do that. <laughs> and then Ryan Vincent, uh, hopefully, we haven't asked him yet, but pretty sure he will uh, be up here. And so... Both of those two can answer your, your questions about theology and Bible. And so, anyway, definitely come. 
bring a coffee mug. We will have, we'll just be hanging out, like chatting a, across a, a, a coffee table. Um, and on, you can text questions to, to right here. And then we're going to put together a, like a poll on Facebook um, of which questions you think you want to hear, hear answered. So that's kind of how we're going to do it. So anyway. Hey, but that's also next week. Chick-fil-A is provided. Yes, free Chick-fil-A. So, Chick-fil-Q&A night. Chick-fil-Q&A night. <laughs> Trying to get that started. It's funny. <laughs> so anyway, it would be a really great night tonight. Yeah, I wanted to take that Yeah. Yeah, if you have friends who wrestle with some of this stuff and have big questions, definitely bring them and, uh, and, and shoot us the text with some of their questions. We'd love to answer them. All right, we'll see you next week. Feel free to hang out. <laughs>